people on Twitter, they're like, I tweeted about Endeavor going public the other day. And they're like, is this going to be added to MVP? And I'm like, one, I'm scared what their compliance is going to kill me if I start answering people on Twitter. And then two, it's like, that's not up to me. back everyone to the in the game podcast it's always a pleasure to be in your company this is anand punjabi with my co-host and fellow georgetown alum vladimir bazanitz you're in for a real treat as we bring you the second of a special two-part show featuring joe pompliano joe writes a very successful newsletter called huddle up where he analyzes all things related to the business of sports very much like what we discuss here at in the game In just a few short months, Joe has grown his subscriber base to over 32,000 readers. He's also becoming something of an authority in his field on Twitter, going from zero to over 160,000 followers in almost no time at all. Vlad and I sit down with Joe and discuss the growing retail interest in investing in the sports industry and how ETFs are making it more accessible to everyone. We talk about fractional ownership of different sports asset classes, from trading cards to entire professional sports teams. We also think about how athletes are more empowered and better positioned than ever to grow their personal brands and earning opportunities. That and much more on this episode of In The Game. We have part two now of our uh, special guest with us, uh, Joe Pompliano from Huddle Up Sports. You may have listened to the previous episode where he introduced himself and uh, told us about all the terrific things that he's been working on. Very rapid growth in his uh, digital journalism career, if that's how I can describe it. But for those folks who maybe didn't miss, who missed the earlier episode, Joe, could you give us a little summary? Just a quick one of what you've been working on, where you came from, from your investment banking background, and what you're doing today. Yeah, of course. So I spent, I was at Octagon Sports Agency in Washington, D.C. for a short period of time. I worked at J.P. Morgan in New York City, and then I, you know, I just figured out what I wanted to do long term, which was talk about sports. (laughs) So I started a newsletter called Huddle Up where I talk about the business and money behind sports. I've been doing it since July. I have about uh, 32,000, 33,000 subscribers, and I run a Twitter account with about 160,000 followers. So I talk about the business and money behind sports all day online, and I have a lot of fun doing it. (laughs) So do you find yourself reading a lot? Because you write every day, you write five days a week. I assume you have to be reading all the time in order to find your message, find your voice. Is that right? Yeah, I think that's one of the... uh, the most important parts for sure. And I think it's probably one of the toughest parts about what I'm doing is you constantly have to be learning and educating yourself along with other topics, right? So a lot of time is obviously spent on writing. A lot of time is spent on finding content for Twitter and other platforms and stuff like that. And then a lot of time is spent on the actual business, right? So everything that goes into that operationally is uh, is certainly time consuming also. And then it's just finding those pockets of time in between to continue to educate yourself, read new stuff, listen to podcasts, whatever it might be, the the avenue you want to do it in. But yeah, I'd certainly say one of the, the things I struggle with the most, which I constantly remind myself to keep doing is just educating myself, whether it's reading or doing things or making sure I'm up to date, right? So like when new things are coming, NBA Top Shot's a perfect example, right? Like that came out of the scene uh, a few months ago. It's like, all right, you need immediately to get up to speed. This is going to be a big topic. You need to know everything about it, all that kind of stuff, right? So 
it's constantly uh, educating yourself, making sure you're up to speed, making sure you're knowledgeable on certain topics, and then forming your own opinion. Well, you must be doing something right because you made a big announcement very recently about your partnership with uh, Roundhill Investments, and they launched. Uh, they've got a number of ETFs, and they've got a couple in the sports arena. They've had bets, obviously, which has done very well since launch, more than doubled in price. I've been following that quite closely. But tell us now a little bit about uh, how you got involved with Roundhill and uh, about the MVP ETF that was just launched uh, this week. How did it come about and what what are your hopes? What are your plans for this? Yep. Yeah. So I know the guys at Roundhill really well. I've known them for a little bit of time now. They obviously, as you alluded to, have bets, which is the sports betting ETF. It's it's done really well. It's not only doubled in price, but it has about 500 million in AUM now. So it's it's grown. It's it's uh it's gotten a lot of press and it's really big. So they came to me off the back of that and they were like, hey, look, this one's done really well, but we think there's an opportunity to do something similar in professional sports. So I thought that was interesting. It's obviously an area I spend a lot of time on, not only from like a team specific valuation, but just a macro kind of industry, you know, 90,000 foot down view. Uh, so they're like, hey, look, we, we think there's an opportunity to partner here. And just to be crystal clear, so I don't, their compliance doesn't kill me. I'm a marketing partner for them, right? So I have equity in the fund, but I just am simply marketing it, really. They are involved sure. in the whole selection of the holdings. They are the ones that determine kind of the weighting of all of them and everything like that. You're not the advisor. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I th it's funny because people on Twitter, they're like, uh, I tweeted about Endeavor going public the other day. And they're like, is this going to be added to MVP? And I'm like, yeah. I'm like, one, I'm scared what their compliance is going to kill me if I start answering people on Twitter. And then two, it's like, that's not up to me. <laughs> so I, I like to make that clear. But no, it's it's exciting for me. I, I posted a video and I, I outlaid a lot of my reasoning. But I think what it really comes down to is like, number one, the market for sports is big and it's continuing to grow every single year, right? So I think the numbers were it was $471 billion market in uh, 2018, and it's expected to be a $626 billion market in 2023. So that's a 33% jump in just a few years. And keep in mind, right, that's with the contraction due to COVID-19 in 2020. So we, we saw a slight contraction or whatever, but that's one thing. Number two would be just the franchise appreciation. I think the these usually come out and they're pretty common in, in big topics in the sports industry when Forbes releases their report or Sportico released theirs last year. And it's kind of like you see these numbers of what teams were a decade ago, or even when um, you know Adam Silver became commissioner and the values they've gone so far. So I think the stat is if you, if you look at the average franchise across the NFL, MLB, NBA, NHL, Premier League, et cetera, the average franchise over the last decade has appreciated 500%. So that's obviously wow. impressive, right? So when you combine that with with the global market, both those things growing is good. And then I think the other things are like, uh, we just saw it with Amazon, right? Coming in on the streaming deal with the NFL. I think one of my core beliefs is that as we add more players, the prices are going to continue going up. So if you look at uh, the traditional players, right? We have the network deals, Fox, CBS, et cetera. But when you start adding in ESPN+, Plus, Amazon Prime, Hulu, all these other guys, estimates suggest that the market's going to move a lot higher. I, I think some of them even say it's going to grow by 75% within the next like five years. So when you think about it in that context, like that's another valuation driver for these franchises and not, not only franchises, but overall leagues. And then specifically here in the US, there's a massive opportunity. I mean, everyone talks about it, but there's a massive opportunity in sports betting. So when you think about it, I think the numbers are, it's like 30% of the population. I don't want to be quoted on that, but it's around there, right? It's an estimate of about 30% of the population currently has yeah, access yeah. to mobile sports betting. That's right. And 
there was another estimate that says within five or 10 years, they expect it to be 96%. So there's an obvious train of just kind of growth for sports betting. And I think we're, it's to be determined how this is monetized on like an individual team level. But I think the obvious choice is right. Leagues will benefit heavily because they'll be able to monetize this through not only advertising, but partnerships with different operators. And then on the team level, like they're going to, they're going to monetize this also, whether it's partnerships or, or that, whether they figure out strategic stuff. But there's just a lot of growth, right? And I think the sports industry is something that we've seen time and time again isn't slowing down, regardless of whether people think people are going to go to stadiums or not. Like people will return and it's going to continue to grow. Uh, so it was just something like, in the simplest of terms, I was just extremely excited to get involved from the aspect of giving people access to this for the first time. Uh, right. So performance aside, like, if you wanted to own a team, you can go buy the individual equity, but there was never like a, you know, a diverse and unique way that was efficient to go and invest in this asset class. So creating that vehicle was kind of like a no brainer for me. We speak about esports fairly regularly on our show because we, we are big believers in the growth of esports and we've seen it. I listened to a podcast by the, um, it's the largest European esports league. I forget the gentleman's name. German guy, very articulate. And unfortunately, I forget his name now. He said esports is today, the Premier League was in the early 90s, like just, just when it had started. Do you expect to see any esports plays within this ETF? Is this, is this a possibility? Or is that, is that completely separate? Yeah, I don't think there will be. I, I don't want to cut it off because I'm not necessarily in charge of determining what goes into the fund. Of course. No, we understand that. Yeah, but just off our conversations, I think that, well, here, here's the caveat to all of this. Roundhill has another ETF called Nerd, which is an esports play. Uh, so, okay. Yeah. So if people want to- I think some gamers might take exception to the, uh, to the name that they've <laughs> given that one. Hey, let's be clear. I wasn't involved in that one. <laughs> I'm not a gamer myself, but I think a few other guys, but hey, come on. Yeah, I, I think uh, that was probably chosen on purpose, whether that's uh, smart or not. I uh, I can't imagine that was by accident. But yeah, they have they have another ETF for esports. So I don't think okay. we'll include those in this fund. But yeah, I, I agree. I think it's a room for growth. And I think it's obviously an exciting industry. There was Collectible as well that you uh, told uh, your followers about recently. Yeah, so Collectible, I, I think most people might know, but for those that don't know, it's a fractional investment platform for sports trading yep. cards and collectibles, right? So on the simplest level... Trading cards can be really expensive. Some can go for a million, two, three, four, five, whatever it might be. And uh, what they do is they buy those cards. They basically IPO them. They, they make them mini companies and they IPO them to the market. And you can buy shares for as little as $5, as much as $10, $15, They do about one a day on average, depending on how many they get approved by the SEC at a given time. And it has every, they have whatever you want. So there's uh, autographed pictures, there's jerseys, there's rookie cards, whatever it might be. But there's been some really impressive returns. So really my thesis behind the whole thing was, I think sports cards are an extremely interesting industry just from not only have we seen a lot of recent growth, but I think we're going to continue to see it for two reasons. One, there's a lot of capital flowing into the space. So when you think about uh, Collector's Universe just got purchased for almost I, almost a billion dollars, I think it really was what it ended up being towards when the share price, uh, when That's the deal incredible. was executed. Yeah, so That's incredible, remarkable. right? And when you think about their business, right? To get a card graded right now, you have to pay $20 and you have to wait a month, two, three months, right? It takes forever, 10 weeks almost sometimes. They're so busy. They're so, so busy. busy. So that's going to improve dram dramatically uh, with this investment, with, the, with those guys taking over. And then we saw the golden auction deal also. So they got $40 million of capital injected into them. 
the churning group led that deal. And then there was a bunch of other uh, celebrity investors that invested also. So I think when you see a bunch of not only money, but like I mentioned before, intellectual capital flow into a space, you have to take notice. And then secondly, I don't, I have one rule. I don't ever mess with a community that's like super emotional and super engaged. So when you think about it on just like the simplest level, Bitcoin has it, Tesla has it, trading cards have it, NBA Top Shot has it. Like, I just don't mess with that. And I don't mean that as in like, I'm getting involved. Not all the time, right? Like I don't own Tesla stock. And that's not because I don't necessarily believe in the business. It's just not for me. But I'm, I'm certainly not going to short the stock because you never know with, with communities like this. Like you don't want to underestimate the power of the internet and the power to, and the power of people combining together for a community and that kind of stuff, right? So I think that's super important. And yeah, so Collectible was like a no-brainer for me. It was what they're doing is they're democratizing access to the most valuable investment cards in the space. So when you think about it for trading cards, everyone always talks about the S&P 500 in the comparison of the trading cards. You know, S&P is 150% over a certain period of time and trading cards are 200, right? But what they fail to mention is most of that value is actually at the top of the market. So it's the top 100 cards, not the, not the 500. So when you think about it as the most expensive cards, the cards that are going for a million dollars, $2 million, 500K really and up, Collectible gives the regular investor access to those who didn't have access before. So me, if I wanted to buy a card, I would normally have to go, that's $500,000. I would have to pool money together from a bunch of people. There's no efficient way to fundraise that money. It's not easy. It's not electronic, anything like that. Super difficult. 99% of people just wouldn't do it. They just wouldn't even think about doing it. Collectible democratizes that access. They give you the ability to invest in these cards. And what we've seen is incredible, incredible uh, returns, right? So I think they have, I think the stats are, in the last three months, they've, well, so let's take a step back. The way the process works is they IPO a card, you buy into the IPO, you have 90 days before it starts trading on the secondary market on their platform. In those 90 days, three times already within the last three months, they've had buyout offers, which is essentially someone like you, me, or someone else coming in and being like, hey, Collectible, we saw you IPO this, we'll offer you this for the card instead before it goes to market to trade. So investors have already bought into the card and they own equity into it. Uh, and now they're receiving an offer to buy out from those shares before it starts trading on the secondary market. That's happened three times. The average return is like 150% within like 35 days. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I don't want to hold, don't, don't hold me hostage on those numbers, but it's, it's incredible, right? I think that we've seen the demand has been there. Uh, there's obviously an engaged community that has an attachment to the hobby. And then as more capital pours in and ancillary services are developed from grading to auctions, uh, to different platforms, whether it's uh, marketplaces or portfolios that let you manage all your cards, whatever it might be, we're just seeing a bunch of different systems built out. And I think that's good for the hobby in general. Interesting. Joe, on this uh, specifically, these assets don't make any revenue other than their value just grows because more people are kind of entering into the into the acquisition phase. I mean, and you just talked about this also in our previous show where we talked about the NFL networks where, you know, you said if you start adding more players, the, you know, the value of, of this is going to go, right? But there is no there is no revenue that comes off of these assets, right? Other than just, just the value goes up. Is that how the return is made? Yeah. I mean, I think it's just the natural, uh, natural drivers beyond supply and demand, right? So when you think about who's currently in the market, more buyers are coming in every single day, right? So that's driving demand up, but the supply stays the same. You know, prices are naturally going to go up. And I think that we've seen it with some cards, not all cards, obviously, the market is efficient and some go down, some go up. But I think what we've seen is that people don't really care, right? This is a hobby for a lot and they care about not only the tangible market, but now the NFT market has evolved. Um, and we've seen yeah. that 
people see this as an asset, right? They see it as not only a store of value, as opposed to uh, maybe it's something that the newer age guys that are, you know, guys and girls that are 25 years old and down, instead of buying gold, right? They'll put their money in an asset that not only can store the value, but will appreciate in value. And that's what I think we've seen with trading cards. Are you seeing athletes participate in uh, in these transactions also? And maybe they're selling off, you know, half of the asset or something like that, but it's still retaining kind of a the you know biggest chunk of it. Yeah, I actually think it's it's on the other side too. What I've seen, uh, and I think we're gonna there's gonna be a lot more news coming out in the next few weeks or months, is around kind of those top tier athletes actually buying into the market. So a lot of these guys have been actively looking to acquire their most exclusive trading cards just from like the perspective of betting on themselves, right? So when you think about that historically, really that meant like incentives in your contract or you know something of that nature or a partnership with a company or whatever it might be an endorsement deal. And now it's like, wait, I can actually legally gamble on myself, right? And you're not going around the league, right? This is all legal and it's allowed, but you're betting on yourself. You're buying your card. You're betting that your yeah. performance is going to continue to improve. You're going to win championships. You're going to do all these things. And that card's going to appreciate in value. So it not only matters for players that are still in the league, right? But guys that are doing business out of the league, right? So one of the examples is uh, The Rock. He didn't even play, I mean, he played in the CFL, but he didn't play in the NFL. His rookie, his cards from the University of Miami were selling for hundreds of thousands of dollars. So right. that's like a perfect right. example of guys that well, are Well, The just, Rock is The Rock. He's yeah, one of, of the course. biggest social media guys around. Of course. So, I mean, I think Gary Vee was right. Gary Vee was talking about sports cards five years ago. Fellow New Yorker like yourself. I don't know if you follow Gary, Gary yeah. Vee. And everything that he 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 sends out, but he was talking about trading cards. He was talking about things that people have an emotional, potentially nostalgic connect a connection to, is going to increase in value hugely. Uh, and he and he did specifically talk about trading cards for regularly. He talked about this a lot. You know, he's a big Jets fan. He loves his sports, and he talked about trading cards. He talked about garage sailing, finding stuff that you could arbitrage. This seems like the ultimate arbitrage. Now, do you think this is going to be tokenized? Is 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 collectibles thinking about this fractional ownership? I mean, I I now think of fractional ownership in a DLT way. Now I'm trying to I'm trying to understand that more and more. Is is that the way collectibles might be heading or their competitors perhaps? I haven't heard anything on that topic from them specifically. I think potentially, yes, just to shoot straight on your answer. But I think one of the things we're gonna see is Obviously, digital aspect of collectibles through NFTs has gotten a lot of popularity recently, right? And a lot of press and a lot of PR uh, for both good and bad reasons, depending on you know who you're talking to. But I think one of the things we're going to see is we're going to see those black and white world of physical and digital start to merge a little bit and become gray, right? Right, so right. I don't know if any of this is you know at what stage it's at, but I know some of the companies have been talking about marrying the two, right? So it's issuing... 10 NFTs with the with the one of one last one being tied to a physical card of some sort or a jersey or a memorabilia or whatever it might be, right? So I think we're going to start seeing people capitalize on those collectors that live in the physical world and the digital world. And that's what I mean by uh, the guys at Collectors Universe and Golden Auctions, they're not upset about NFTs having a moment, right? They, they enjoy it because really what it's going to do is it's going to bring more attention to the hobby in general. And then when there's that natural shakeout of people leaving uh, that either lost money or lost interest or doing whatever it might be, some of them are going to fall to physical trading cards, right? People that want that nostalgia, people that like to touch things, whatever it might be, but we'll naturally see some of those people settle within the trading card industry also. Well, I think there's so many things at play here. There are the young guys who are addicted to technology and all of a sudden to own 
a piece of what's essentially a video, a video clip. And you know, I was talking to my son about this, who's only eight years old, and he said, well, nine today, and he said, well, we can watch these clips on YouTube, so what is the big deal here? You know, we talked about LeBron's dunk over someone that was the most expensive uh, secondary market trade at that particular week, and we just went and Googled that dunk, and there's 15 different clips of it. And then Vlad and I were talking about this. Well, you know, they must be doing something special with this moment that they're able to sell and then resell at a very high value. I guess all those Gen Z individuals, they're going to be leaning towards the more digital side of these collectibles. And maybe, you know, the boomers and the guys who've retired and have, you know, made many millions in the stock market, you know, and have invested well over the years they're still going to prop up the, the physical side of things. Everything that can be digitized will be digitized. I, I think that's a good way to look at it. I think that one of the things that's driving Top Shot specifically is they really nailed the combination. Well, first off, timing-wise really helped them. I think COVID-19 was extremely, you know, it's not good for anyone necessarily, but for a marketplace that thrives on people being at home and talking about it and communicating on social media and all that, that's obviously yeah. great for them. But I think they did a really good job of their product is perfect from the aspect of it combines it combines sports betting, it combines uh, crypto, it combines the combination of sports betting, crypto, and all the other hot stuff that's going on right now through social, like they nailed it, right? And the product's not perfect by any means. Don't get me wrong. They, there's there's issues in their beta all the time. But I just think it's the combination is lethal when it comes to today's generation of people that want things digital and want to gamble. Take Robinhood, for example. People are taking their stimulus checks and betting on stocks, right? So when you can do that in a digital world with sports that you already know and love, it has that gambling aspect. And then it combines with sports. It's like a home run for them. So I think um, that's been super helpful. I think what we're going to see now is just they need to get their platform under control, right? Because we've seen things that they can't handle drops, people can't cash out. There's a bunch of different issues yeah. like that. So I think Lots. it's yeah, bots, all that kind of stuff. Well, one of the things I don't know if you guys are are heavy into it, but one of the things that scares me is I saw the other day they had they have hundreds of thousands of people you know line up for these drops and, and get cards. Yeah, yep. I, I read somewhere that less than ten thousand people at the time could cash out of their account. Right, so. If 200 people are on the platform, 5%, whatever, right? That's obviously concerning when you think about money yeah. flowing in, but nothing coming out. You keep yeah, money in yeah, a confined yeah. space. It has nothing to do but encourage spending, drives prices up, right? So that's uh, that, that's obviously something they need to get under control and allow people to cash out that want to leave and stuff like that. That sounds like a Bitcoin wallet to me. <laughs> that's what I keep hearing about all these sort of you know second tier uh, wallets out there. People can't get their money out. Yeah, I mean it's obviously an issue, right? When you keep money in a confined space, people have nothing yeah. else to do but but spend it yeah. somehow, and it, and it inflates right. prices to some degree. But the thing that you know you, that I always remind myself with NBA Top Shot is they have a partnership with the NBA, and when you think about it, this from is that, it. right? Yeah, when you think about it from that perspective, it adds a lot of validity to it to some degree. You, you know that the NBA isn't going to let it fail. They don't want to look bad. They don't want to do that, but. They also haven't put their full marketing weight behind it yet, right? So imagine if the NBA is really promoting this. Adam Silver's talking about it. They're, I heard a, I was watching a game the other day, and I heard a, the announcer, someone dunked, and he said, that'll be a top shot, right? And it's just stuff like that, that like the more and more that happens, you can kind of see these things becoming more popular. And I think that that'll be huge for their platform. This is not regulated yet, right, is it, in any way? I mean, there's no, there's no SEC regulation behind this or no federal body looking at these transactions yet. It's still very early stages. Yeah, I was going to say, not that I know of, no. Okay. 
Well, still like crypto. Crypto is not regulated, really. They're still trying to, all the governments around the world are trying to figure that out. So I guess it's in the same boat. If you had to pick one trend that you think is going to have the most profound impact on the sports industry. Now, I know this is not an easy question, but if one comes to mind that you would say, hey, okay, from now, we're year zero today, five years from now, I see this happening. This is a big thing. In, in your opinion, what would be the one, the one thing that's going to have the most profound impact on professional sports or sports in general? That's interesting. Tough question. Too tough? Too broad? Yeah, I mean, no, I, mean I can think about Pick it. Pick a couple. I, yeah, I, I think there's a few things, right? On the, the most simple level, I think we're going to see athletes wanting to own that own relationship with their fans, right? So there's, there's obviously a lot they can do through social media, but how do we take that a step further, right? How do you communicate with your fans directly through a two-way conversation rather than a one-way, really? Because that's really what it is, right? When an athlete tweets out or whatever, it might be post a YouTube video or an Instagram. It's mostly one-way communication. How do you create that two-way communication level with fans. So I don't know the exact answer to that, but I think we're going to see a lot of people try to do that in an efficient way. I don't know if that's something that blockchain can help with or whatever it might be, but it's one of those things I think professional athletes are going to find a way to to cater to their fans more because, right, the fans are the are the ones who drive everything in the end, right? They drive your brand, they buy your products, they promote your stuff, they, they are the ones buying tickets to the games, whatever it might be. So that connection is super important. And I think it goes the same for the leagues and the teams even. I think they're going to look for ways to leverage fans, especially coming back from COVID-19 where these fans proved really how important they were, right? Every league in the world basically struggled without fans in attendance. The contracts with the media are nice and the TV deals are great. But really what you need is you need these fans at the games, you need them buying tickets, you need them, you know, buying jerseys, concessions, whatever it might be. So I think we're going to look for interactive ways uh, that these teams, these leagues and these players can further engage fans. So I think that's something to watch. I think there's a lot of talk right now in the ticketing market. How can we improve tickets, right? There's just the old system is super antiquated and it's just old fashioned, right? Printing a ticket, people still do that. They bring it to the game, you lose it, whatever. You know, like mobile ticketing, I don't even know the percent, but I saw it the other day and I was shocked at how low it still was. Obviously that picked up a lot during the pandemic. I think the stats during the pandemic were like 90 plus percent, which is where you would assume we are now. But I'd be shocked if we go we go back to stadiums next year and everyone doesn't have some option of, you know, kind of mobile ticketing scan, get you through really simply and clearly. Uh, speaking of clearly, NFT. clear the company. Yeah. Well, I mean, it could be. Yeah. And I think that's another thing. Like we're going to start doing, I think teams are going to start doing moments at games through NFTs, right? So if you think about it and you go to a, I'm a, I'm a New Yorker, so a Yankees game, why can't I have an NFT of the moment I was at the game or a play from the game, right? Why can't that be, I don't want a bobblehead, right? You know what I mean? Like that's, to me, that's old, right? Like, why can't I have something digital that's a collectible that not, and those things are, I don't even think are going to necessarily trade up in price. I don't think those are like super valuable. I think it's like cool mementos, right? The same way someone would want a picture from a game. Why can't you have a digital moment that the team gives you, whether it's a play, whether it's a picture of you, whether it could be anything, right? I suppose if you have 60,000 people in a stadium and 10% and, and of them pay 20 bucks for some really cool camera angle, you know, fused in with the sound and, you know, the, you're, you, you know, you're superimposed with the player making a play or something like that and it matches with your ticket, so you can yeah it matches with your ticket, so you can prove to everyone you were at that game sweet you know super bowl right perfect example 10 years from now you have a play from the game a moment the ticket whatever it might be and they're all kind of married together i think those are things that people will look at right and when you think about it in the context of revenue 
they're going to try whatever they can, right? When we're coming off a yeah. year like we just had, the NHL's out here selling sponsorships all over their jersey, all over their helmet, everywhere they can find. They're looking for ways to make money. And I think that these digital assets provide a unique opportunity. And whether people think they're smart, stupid, or the worst idea ever, it doesn't really matter because all these leagues, all these teams, and all these players have fans in the digital atmosphere, right? In the digital world that they want to cater to, that they want to meet, you know, that they want to engage with. So when people in the physical world, whether they want to buy them or not, it doesn't really matter because there's demand in the digital world. And we've seen that with Rob Gronkowski doing his NFTs, with Patrick Mahomes doing right. his, right? There's fans that are yep. there that want to buy these assets. So I think that's another trend that, that that's going to be interesting to watch. Well, I think uh, we have had a Really good time here with Joe Vlad. Uh, anything else you want to talk to Joe about or ask him? I mean, he's been very generous with his time. We've had a, a blast, I think, you know, covering so many topics. Joe, uh, you mentioned uh, you might be also starting a podcast. You want to give us a little bit of a preview of sort of how you're going to launch that Ooh, and yeah. maybe some of the guests that you're going to try to bring on bring on your show? Yeah, I think it's still in the works right now. I think the general concept is going to be interview style with uh, athletes, executives, people within the sports business industry. I think what I found is a lot of just through conversations with professional athletes, a lot of them want just an open and clear channel for them to get their message out regarding financials, right? So when people mention the stats of players going broke and all this stuff, I think a lot of them want to, it's not necessarily an ego thing, but I think it's like, hey, we want to show that we're educated about these things, right? Because a lot of players are these days. And I don't think the casual fan understands the degree to which these guys not only know, but put in the work to get to that level, right? A lot of them educate themselves. A lot of them are dedicated to the craft per se. So I think they just want a space to be able to tell those stories, talk about their investments, see the trends that they're they're watching, or talk about the trends they're watching, and, and stuff like that. So really, that's what I'm trying to create with the podcast. Uh, the goal is to just keep it once a week for now, and then start a YouTube channel. And what I'm really going to be doing on the side also is is telling some of these interesting sports business stories that I've been telling on Twitter through video format also, and, and kind of engaging another audience that may not live on Twitter uh, through YouTube. Excellent. Well, that sounds like an exciting uh, set of things to uh, focus on That's for the next few months. That's very exciting. I know we'll pay close attention. Yeah. Thanks, guys. I appreciate that. Joe, tell our listeners again, for those who didn't catch you in the previous episode, where can they find you? Where can they read about everything that you're writing about and you're tweeting about? Let, let us know, please. Yeah, the easiest way is my Twitter account at Joe Pompliano on Twitter. And then the newsletter uh, that I write, it's Monday through Friday, just money and business behind sports, one article a day. It's at readhuddleup.com. And in the not too distant future, uh, you'll be coming through, your dulcet tones will be coming through people's ears as well. So that'll be, that'll be another one to add to the list. Joe, thank you very much for joining us uh, on this special double episode, I should say. Uh, it's been a real pleasure, man. Thank you. Yeah, th thanks, Anand. Thanks, Vlad. I had a really good time. Thanks for having me. All the best. Vlad, good game. We'll, uh, we'll see you next week. Good game. Cheers. Thank you for joining us on our podcast. We know that if you're listening to this show, we know that you know how to subscribe to podcasts. So hit that subscribe button. Tell your friends and your family about us. And if you'd like to get in touch, please connect with us. Our contact information is in the show notes. Thank you for listening. We'll be in the game with you in a few days with our new episode.